Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter at EdSurge. We're a national publication covering education. Okay, quick reference check. How many grad degrees do you have? And how many more do you think you'll need over the course of your career? Right now there's a boom in the number of grad degrees and certificates being awarded by colleges, and even by some new upstart types of of educational institutions. That's especially true since more of these offerings are now online. And these degrees are offered in different shapes and sizes, so some of them might be be short, but even the longer ones are available for a fraction of the price of of an in-person degree. Well, at least in some cases. But it's pretty different to think of university degrees available at a range of price points. To get a sense of how dynamic this market for grad degrees is, last week I went to the ASU GSV Summit in San Diego. This annual meeting is co-hosted by the Arizona State University and by GSV Capital, which is a venture capital firm. So it brings together thousands of educators and business leaders that are looking for the next big thing in education. And this year, the buzz was really about the grad market. First, there was giant merger news at the beginning of the week as a company called 2U, which helps colleges set up online grad programs, bought a company called Trilogy Education Services for an eye-popping $750 million dollars. Trilogy is also in this new grad school space. It helps set up and run short-term coding programs at university extension schools. Meanwhile, Arizona State University announced a new spin-off venture that will help giant corporations like Starbucks or other big employers set up benefits to give free or low-cost tuition to its workers from participating colleges. Again, mostly online. These announcements point to a very different educational world after college, where higher education continues over a lifetime. Actually, in some ways, it kind of sounds exhausting. And it's a world in which the most famous universities may serve far more people than they do now, at least at the graduate level. And that might make it difficult for smaller colleges to compete. To help understand the shifting landscape, I sat down with Sean Gallagher, who's written a book on the future of university credentials, and he also runs a center at Northeastern University that tracks this space. In fact, just last week, he wrote a column for EdSurge that went viral about how prestigious colleges are winning in this new grad school boom. This was part of an interview series we did during the conference about how higher ed is changing, and we streamed it live and took questions from our audience. So you'll, you'll hear those as you listen. Here are highlights from that conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Sean. Happy to, yeah. These are great conversations. Yeah, so you're today, um, you're talking about grad school and credentials beyond undergrad. Yep. Like post-baccalaureate, yep. I guess is the fancy term for it. Sure. But it's it's very interesting, especially because people have been very focused in the last few weeks on this college admission scandal at the undergrad level, where, as everyone probably knows by now, there was, you know, the bribery and all kinds of means to try to get at that scarce resource of some of these elite higher ed undergrad. But at the graduate school level, even among some of the best known kind of prestigious universities, it's a little different from what you've looked at. Could you talk a little bit about how the graduate landscape is is kind of changing these days? Yeah, so it, it's really a continuation of trends that have been going on for decades, but I yeah. think they fly a little bit under the radar, I think especially in the general public, uh, but even within higher ed, even within universities where you have departments and people that might be experts and working in some of these markets every day, there's this sense that, well, most graduate education is, is people earning PhDs, and right. it is uh, hyper-selective. 
right? But in fact, you have a lot of uh, prestigious universities and certainly the universities below them in the rankings as well, the mass market, if you will, yeah. uh, they have been scaling and looking to grow their graduate programs, um, which ties to a broader point. A lot of this innovation we've seen in credentials, new forms of certificate, uh, various types of micro-credential, all the work integrated learning that's going on, much of the online education, right? Uh, sure. To You and Trilogy are in the news today. Right. Here at the event. Right. You, yeah, the To You. Those markets OPM are largely, buying Trilogy, right? Those are largely graduate education post-baccalaureate markets. It's not the undergrad. Boot camps and MOOCs. When you look at the data, and we right. still need to get even better data, the studies that have been done, the numbers that have been released, 80% of the people pursuing those uh, secondary learning, which is very important, uh, already have a bachelor's degree. Right. And so there's a lot of work we could get into talking about what we could still do to provide more and better access at the undergraduate level. Sure. You know, connect community college to bachelor's degrees and, and other kinds of credentials. But the graduate space, I think people tend to have a perception of it as something that is very sort of uh, idyllic and fixed. Right. Uh, but 40% of all graduate education in the United States in terms of enrollment is now hybrid or online. 40% online or hybrid. Yeah. Yeah, forty percent. Yeah, that's. I was more than I would have guessed, and, and I covered the space. So, um, and so, and you mentioned that's kind of a variety of ways, right? It's like you, everything from these kind of MOOC-based degrees and like the Georgia Tech seven thousand dollar masters to right. maybe more conventional but online or executive ed or professional ed. That's that's mixed, right? Yeah, I think the thing to watch remains uh, the fact that we have this, uh, and it's still uh, small numbers, right? There's maybe right, fifteen right. institutions that are very active in it. We have this new station emerging between a classic, call it high price degree, uh -huh. and something that's shorter, low cost, right? So we have MOOCs, yeah. and then we have your MOOCs, which were free in the idea, original idea, right? Yeah. yeah, and then we have your father's MBA, let's call it. <laughs> okay. In in the middle now, yeah, we have these uh, lower cost graduate degrees. It's the same graduate degree from the same institution. Yeah, it might be one third of the cost, and higher ed is experimenting with trading out the different sort of services and inputs, and, and that's part of the cost, too, and how they bring the, the cost down. Yeah. So a, a MOOC-based certificate might not be for you, but if you want a little more coaching, yeah. if you want a little more access to the faculty, uh, you know, some more rigor and, and services in different regards, there's this kind of new credential for you. And then if you can afford it and, you know, sort of get to the school and study face-to-face, -face, we still have the old MBA credential. So Georgia Tech, the University of Illinois, now the University of Michigan, uh, MIT, they're doing some interesting things with new modes of offering, uh, I guess what I could call old degrees. And in those zones that they're doing it, we can see some early evidence that it's actually disrupting the vertical, right? It's taking market share in a outsized way. When you go from zero students in a program mm -hmm. to one or 2,000 students enrolled, uh, you know, that's a lot of the net growth compared to how many new MBA students do you get uh, across the U.S. Oh, adding it the old way. Yeah. Or Georgia Tech and computer science. Sure, sure. So let's let's sort of extend that to you are one of the 4,000 degree granting institutions. You're one of the 2,000 that isn't particularly focused on online yet. Right. Uh, your revenue or your enrollment is flat because of declining demographics. And you say great, I'm going to partner with an OPM and we're going to go online. And, we're and that's take... the, sorry, that's like, like the two you, the online program manager, other companies yes. that do this. Yeah. Yep. Help you build an online program as a college. Let's fire up an online strategy and let's sign a 10 or 20 year deal 
uh-huh. with a company. Like, sure, there are instances where that can can work absolutely. Sure, but it's not quite that simple when all of a sudden you're going up against some elite institutions, in addition to the uh, sort of mega universities as they're being called. The yeah, like the, the Southern New Hampshire University, Southern New Hampshire, who you just had right, Western governors. Right. I mean, sure. they are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on enrollment marketing, branding, advertising campaigns. So yeah. So the short of it, and none of us can really necessarily predict exactly what the future will look like, right? Uh, Is it's a dynamic market right now. We're 20 years into the online degree market. Really the first online degrees launched around 1998, maybe 1996 in some cases. And sort of look where we are. It still feels very early. Right. when we talk about online degrees. But the graduate space, as we have in, in the article, uh, is a hot one. And it's really interesting because it's, it's, it seems like even more so, a lot of the original conversation about MOOCs was really on the undergrad, but it seems like more has actually happened in this grad space in yeah. these experimental areas in yeah. the last five, 10 years. And like you said, it's not always well understood, I think. And we're early in, uh, so, edX, for example, or MIT, when they launched uh, MITx, from the beginning, they were really focused on, and Harvard as well, sure. how can we impact the campus experience? Uh, Stanford, right? So Coursera, if I recall correctly, spun out of Stanford. Yep. And I think Stanford had or has this open loop university concept that they put out there. Uh, these, these experiments and these enterprises that have grown up are partly about ultimately impacting undergraduate residential education. I see. But we're still early in that as well. I see. So stay tuned maybe on that. You know, I, I, I used to live in Washington, D.C. for a long time, and it really felt like it's like a unique place where like it feels like everyone is getting a grad degree, and I think the, the stats bear this out. It's more, there's more graduate education right. there than in other cities. Yep. But in a way, like, did I get a preview of the future? Do you think there's going to be a kind of a, a boom, or is it already happening, where there's more expectation uh, among a lot of industries that you'll get some sort of continuing ed past baccalaureate. Yeah, past, absolutely. Past it's, it's been happening. I mean, if I recall correctly, I think the graduate degree attainment rate in, in DC, uh, the metro area is right. around 22 to 25%. That sounds right. That's close to triple, more than double the national average, which is uh, 13%. But it's going up now. Uh, if you go to Columbus, Ohio, or if you go to Phoenix, Arizona, I want to say the graduate degree attainment rate in places like that is probably seven or eight or nine, perhaps. Okay. Those economies uh, don't necessarily sort of um, demand or require a graduate degree in the same way as we have a concentration of policy jobs uh, or science, right? right? Biotechnology. But when you look at the arc of sort of how nations and communities develop, how higher education has developed, there's sort of a consistent upward continuous almost uh, rising educational attainment. Now that's not to say that we just need to give everyone a graduate degree, but when you look at the job market side of the equation, yep. uh, there's there's steady demand, there's salary premiums that are uh, increasing, and at worst in certain fields, pretty stable for post-baccalaureate education. It doesn't always have to be a master's. It could be a certificate. Maybe it's a boot camp sort of thing, but. In this uh, economy, uh, you're going to have advantages, or you could almost say in some cases, you're going to need some lifelong learning, some post-baccalaureate education. And it's just that today we now have many great options for that. It doesn't have to be exclusively uh, offered by a university, let's say. It could be an alternative provider. It could be in the future, some new form of apprenticeship. 
<laughs> a lot to talk about there. Yeah. I wanted to get your thoughts on, there was an announcement today by Arizona State University, which is one of the hosts of this conference, okay. around creating a new entity. You might have seen this because it was broken in the Chronicle of Higher Ed the other day, where they're going to create a new um, spinoff to help them and other, uh, to help connect industry to colleges like Arizona State, including them, to offer education as a benefit. You probably heard about this. Yep. So yep. what do you think of that model? And, you know, they're not alone. I guess even Coursera and other people have, have spun out products like that where they're trying to connect businesses to, to kind of make it uh, a perk, right, as a, a job right. to get an education from a university. Um, what do you think of that model? And what do you think of this announcement by ASU? Is that, is that, what, what does that mean for this? Is there going to be more of that? Or Yeah, I think it's, it's part of a bigger trend where we're seeing more intermediaries. You use the word connect. Yeah. Uh, so whether it is a sort of a boot camp or online firm or in the employment space uh, or many other instances, you have these third party intermediaries that sit between uh, the student audience or the employer audience and the institution. Yeah. Right. So in, in a sense, um, colleges and universities are often deciding that they're, they're sort of going to focus on their core competencies and whether it's marketing acumen, technology, employer relations, I would throw like guild education in there as another example. We could list many examples. Right. There are firms, and it's part of the boom that is all around us here at this event and in the market and world at large in ed tech investment. There are firms that are becoming sort of turnkey intermediaries. Uh-huh. And so I think uh, the, the employment space sort of skills-oriented education, corporate learning, that's certainly an area where we'll probably see some new models, and this is this is one of the first. I think in terms of the details of the announcement and such, it's pretty early in terms of, well, yeah. what's the business model? How does it work? What exactly do they offer? Are, know, are be, other colleges going to get involved? Because right now they haven't It would all be other, important yeah. questions, right? Sure. Right, but sure. I, I think, you know, one point that's coming up in a lot of conversations so far, as much as I am a fan and a believer in those models, uh, having been at a university for now a, a decade that has done some innovative things and we've uh, we've scaled a fair amount, like there's a great opportunity for colleges to also build their own internal capacity. Okay. Right? There are times you outsource and there are times, you know, you, you think about your core and your market position and you can build a real strategic advantage if, as we did, for instance, you invest in a strategy and market research staff where you develop your own app, your own technology. Yeah. Right? Not every institution can do that understand that you get into what's your risk profile what are your financial resources How do you get the money to do it yeah but on that point i understand this new asu announcement to be sort of a joint venture right with the rise fund asu yeah. and a private equity firm or venture capital firm whichever when they are yep and you know there's a heritage of that and it's certainly something we're going to see we're going to see more of right there's there's, you, there's very few uh, publicly traded for-profit universities left yeah. And for many years now, sort of the, the capital, the ideas and the people, you can actually see some of them walking by as we sit here. <laughs> the human capital from that sector, in addition to some of their IP, has now migrated to these intermediary firms and partners who are working with nonprofit colleges and universities to leverage the quality and the brand that a lot of the nonprofits have. And I guess full circle, that takes us back to the new article, uh, which is that, yes, uh, many institutions are struggling but there are some well-positioned um, nonprofit colleges, universities with solid brands and excellent faculty who perhaps on their own or by working with one of these firms 
you know, you're going to see some, some, some big things from them. All right. Well, we have a question from the audience and I know you have to go in a minute, but let's, let's at least get to, yeah. to one of these. What about the move by some employers, uh, not necessarily requiring a bachelor's degree? Oh, that's interesting, right? Yeah. Um, where in other words, I've heard Google has kind of said they're experimenting with this. Uh, will we gradually see more of a focus by employers on skill acquisitions aligned with specific certificates? So could we see a day where these undergraduate degrees are not as important or specific degrees, right? Yeah. And so straight to this. This is something I've been following very closely. Sure. Uh, you could refer to this as the skills-based hiring movement or okay. competency-based hiring. Okay. We recently did a national employer survey, 750 HR leaders across all industries, all, all company sizes. What'd they say? We found that at least half of them are looking at and exploring or hmm. already actively doing was about a quarter, uh, prioritizing skills and competency over degrees. So I want to be sure I stated that. So they're not giving up on the bachelors, but they're, no, they're when, looking at it. When you look at the burning glass data uh, on the share of uh, jobs in the U.S. economy that prefer a bachelor's, let's just say, sure, it's actually been pretty steady. And the, the graduate degree percentage has been pretty steady. Sure. If you dig in, there have been some articles that have sort of surfaced and gotten uh, transmogrified through the grapevine. If you dig into IBM, it is not that their uh, company-wide stance is everything is a new-collar job and right. we do not prefer degrees. It's that they've identified, and we work very closely with them, for about 20% of their jobs, they're going to give people a look and they're going to recognize that you know this is not a degree-required job. That on its own is, like, is, is really important and that mm -hmm. is a new movement that goes back to why this question is important. But I would say it is definitely not a, a, a trend for companies uh, to sort of um, throw out the bachelor's or, or throw out the master's. Nobody should regret getting that yeah. undergraduate degree out there yet. Well, and there's, and there's a tension there, you know, sure. because I think uh, all of us would agree, you know, we want higher quality, more accessible, more affordable degrees. And in cases where a rule doesn't require or need a degree, then it shouldn't require or need a degree. And so there's a lot of work and discussion still to sort through that because it's messy. And uh, frankly, we also need to see how much of it has to do with the current employment situation where we have generally generationally low unemployment rates um, and just you know a very hot market so so how do we measure the quality of these learning of, of the learning across such a broad spectrum of education systems so that's that's what really as you introduce this big mix right I, it's I've wondered that too how do employers sort through all this and how do people know what's good yeah I mean you really need to look at the outcomes and you need right, transparency in that so it depends uh, from who's, it must be hard at the beginning, right? Until you yeah. have a track record. From whose perspective are we measuring it, right? Is it, the, is it student success? Is it job placement? Is it sort of the inputs and the attention to rubrics and learning science and design that went into designing the educational offering? Sure. Um, but I think in, in the world we live in with Yelp and with LinkedIn and with um, a lot more data available, um, where, where we see online data, we can review things as consumers, we're just in a world of more transparency, and that's coming to higher ed, not only through rankings, but probably soon through uh, regulatory reforms and the Higher Ed Act and just the direction things have been pointing in for many years is more of a focus on outcomes, more of a focus on transparency. And when we have that and when we get there, the things that are not offered by university can be assessed sort of on the same measures hmm. and equal, uh, looked at as having an equal standing, right? If you can sort of, um, if you can uh, map that and, and, and document that learning, whether it happened in the workplace or in kind of the ivory tower. Thank you so much for yeah, joining us. Thanks for having me. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. 
You can check out Sean Gallagher's latest column for Ed Surge that we mentioned and see all our past episodes at bit.ly slash edsurgepod. That's bit.ly slash edsurgepod. If you like the show, please take a moment to give us a rating on whatever podcast app you listen through. One review recently I noticed was headlined, Keeping Up, and it notes, love listening to the podcast while working around the house. Hey, thanks for that. We do hope that we're helping folks keep up with these trends wherever they are while they're on the go. And though we can't give any grad school credit for this, like universities, we hope we can help people sort through all this. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of learning. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.